0: Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward podcast, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week in our search for truth, we dig deeper into the crushing court verdict delivered in favour of Peter Ridd, the somewhat less crushing Mueller report into collusion with Russia, and also have a look at GetUp and its potential impact on the Australian election. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. Uh, welcoming first my co-host, or last week the only host, uh, Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. I think I did pretty well. Uh, so I so hear, mate. It was, it was great to listen to. Also joining us today is Aaron Lane, also from R- RMIT University. Good to be with you. Thank you for coming, Aaron. And finally... Our star, roving reporter, our man at the Brisbane Federal Circuit Court, IPA Director of Policy, Gideon Rosner.
1: Thanks, Scott, for uh, that very kind introduction and great to be here as always. Oh Mate,
0: you absolutely smashed it and we look forward to hearing more about how you uh, looked at the Peter Ridd court case and reported on it live from Brisbane. In our final segment on books and culture, we'll look at a new movie about Brexit, of all things, a classic book on the British Enlightenment, a new translation of the New Testament... And finally, another movie on love, sex and betrayal in post-war Berlin. Can't wait for that one, as the saying goes. If you're listening on Apple's podcast app or any of the other great platforms, three words for you, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. You don't want to miss any more episodes of Looking Forward. First up, there was a chat last week about Peter Ridd, but uh, we've been able to dive a bit deeper, Chris Berg. We
2: have and of course, now we've got Gideon in the room, so it'd be interesting to to um, hear Gideon's views. But the headline, which many listeners will already know, but the headline is this. Judge Vaster of the Brisbane Federal Circuit Court ruled for Ridd. Um, in Professor Peter Ridd's favour, ruling that every one of James Cook University's 17 separate disciplinary findings against Ridd, those disciplinary findings that led him to be sacked, were invalid under the Enterprise Bargaining Agreement's defence of academic freedom. There's a lot of discussion in the ruling by Judge Vasta about whether this is a defensive intellectual or academic freedom versus just a clear and simple reading of the enterprise bargaining agreement, but um, it strikes me that this is a really, really significant moment. So, and and since we've got Gideon, we we might as well um, have a chat about. It. So, so Gideon, how did what what interests me about this is it seems pretty clear cut that on the face of it, Peter Ridd was protected by any general understanding of academic freedom. Why on earth didn't JCU agree?
1: Well, JCU's, uh, look, the JCU maintained throughout and still maintain, oh, no, 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 we're very, very open to academic freedom. We respect academic freedom. We just... It's not what Peter has said, it's how he says it. So Peter did make some strong remarks in relation to climate science. He said, on for example, on air with uh, Alan Jones and Peter Credlin that science coming out of uh, the inst- institutions like the Australian Institute of Marine Science, which is a, a partner of JCU, quote, couldn't be trusted. So JCU were arguing, look, it's not that he's... Uh, Taking issue with the sciences, that he's, um insinuating that this is dishonest, or, or and that it's it, 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 and what they tried to do was bring in a code of a staff code of conduct requiring that you be collegiate, that you um, uh, respect the integrity and reputation of the university. But to that last point, there is a conflict between the academic freedom guarantees in Peter's enterprise bargaining agreement, essentially his employment contract, and that's what he was relying on, and a requirement to respect the reputation of the university. If science coming out of university is lousy, by definition you cannot protect at all costs the reputation of that university. There has to be some give or take. So that was their argument, but it, it, it was very, very thin, very, very flimsy, and it fell over in the judgment. As you said, the uh, Judge uh, Salvatore Vasta found that all 17 decisions were invalid because of that guarantee to academic freedom. But you see, if, if the science is lousy,
2: Coming out of any university unit, then isn't it in the interests of the university to have scientists on its own payroll making that claim? I mean, this is this is fundamentally how the idea of knowledge is supposed to advance. Well, well uh, you think so.
1: You'd think so. And the, and one of the points made by the judge during the trial, and I I I didn't know which way it would go necessarily. It didn't look good for the other side. Um, but you know, and but I didn't know for sure because judges a lot of the time do play devil's advocate. They do test evidence but the the judge made the point to the barrister acting for jcu if jcu had spent half as much time actually addressing the substantive complaints by, made by peter as they did in the disciplinary process then this may never have happened and and in the face of that are peter's complaints about the quality assurance processes of the university really that invalid. They, they ignored his substantive complaints about climate science and left no stunt unturned throwing the book at him when he wasn't collegiate.
2: Aaron, where does this leave academic freedom for, for us as as fellow academics?
3: Yeah, um, obviously academic freedom is very important uh, if you are, are an academic like us. And so um, I think for the first thing to say about that is it's, it's heartening that The court in this instance took a very um, wide view of academic freedom. Um, That was something that was put into the enterprise bargaining agreement. Many universities uh, will enshrine that employment right in terms of their collective agreement. And I I think that the case being put forward by JCU, as I understand it, was that that should be given a very narrow construction uh, whereas Peter Ridd's uh, legal team uh, were arguing in favor of a very broad construction of that and um, uh, I, th- I think the, the submissions um, of Stuart Wood QC uh, who was acting for Peter Ridd um, on this point was that JC you didn't invent this idea mm. of academic freedom. Um, when the people put that uh, that phrase "academic freedom" into the enterprise bargaining agreement, um, this wasn't created by JCU. This wasn't a concept that was dreamed up in in twenty thirteen uh, in terms of that employment agreement. This was something that has a, a much much longer, deeper history. Um, and so, I, th- I think that's a that's a very positive outcome of of this case.
2: There was a really interesting section in the judgment, which I looking through the other night. Um, that it's slightly stronger than just academic freedom that, that Judge Vasta is defending, and it's connected to a lot of the discussions that we've had about freedom of speech for the last you know decade in Australia. So I'll, I'll quote from the judgment. So incredibly, the judge writes, the university has not understood the whole concept of intellectual freedom. In the search for truth, it is an unfortunate consequence that some people may feel denigrated, offended, hurt or upset. It may not always be possible to act collegiately when diametrically opposed views clash in the search for truth. It's hard not to read that paragraph and not see it through the prism of all the debates that we've been having over Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act, over the human rights and anti-discrimination legislation of the Gillard government, over all these disputes that we've had about... It's not about... People keep claiming that we're not trying to cut down on your freedom of speech. We're just trying to make it less offensive Mm. we're not trying to um, prevent you from speaking we're just trying to prevent you from hurting others.
1: Mm-mm. Correct. And um, uh, that that's the, 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 the response to this from, you know, the lunatics who are always at me on Twitter and so on, have taken the first paragraph of the judgment saying, this wasn't about X, this wasn't about Y, this wasn't about Z, it was strictly about a clause in an employment agreement. You know, that's very well the case. But if you read the judgment in full, the remarks that were made by the judge in relation to... Uh, this matter do have implications for freedom of speech and yeah one thing that the judgment established was it in freedom of speech and more relevantly to this case academic freedom is not just what you say it is how you say it even if it is offensive even if it is pejorative even if you bang your fist if you yell if you insult somebody else this is how the search for truth occurs you know and, and the point that was made by uh, Stuart Wood QC acting for Peter was that you know the debates over revolution example, were very ugly when they first occurred in England. Um, but if the, the evolutionary debates had occurred at JCU, then the staff there would have censored the, ab- abolition, uh, the evolutionists. <laughs> yes. yeah.
3: And, and can I can I just read you a, a paragraph of, of Stuart Woods' um, just brilliant uh, submissions Correct. And this was in your email to members. This was in your email to members. And, and he, he said the idea of intellectual freedom, and I'm reading verbatim here, the idea of intellectual freedom is not about speaking the truth. It's about speaking your opinion. Why? Because the clash of opinions over time, if they're hard enough, if they're tough enough. They're direct enough, they will reveal the truth. Truth is the product of an exercise of intellectual freedom. It's not a requirement for its exercise. All you have to do in order to exercise the rights granted under this clause of the agreement is an honestly held opinion. Not to be truthful, that test could never be made out. Truth is the product of the contest of the ideas. And he goes on to say um, that it has to be a workable right, you can't exercise this right, that is, that that intellectual freedom, with the fear of the sword of Damocles hanging over your head because you'll never exercise it.
1: Yeah. I have to say, you know, I do love this job and uh, there are plenty of great things about working for the RPA. but one of the best experiences I've had was being in court and seeing Stuart on his feet actually saying that it was a, a absolute powerhouse. Yeah, what, what, what's,
2: what's interesting about that argument, so that's the classic John Stewart. Mill argument for freedom of speech, which is that through the contest, through the clash, we get closer to the truth. It's a discovery story. What's uh, I've always been a little bit uncomfortable with that because I I, in the in the general freedom of speech case, but in the case for academic freedom, that is undeniably the philosophy that drives academic freedom or intellectual freedom in the universities, because there is this um, assumption among academics and among scholars that you're, that other scholars who aren't experts in your incredibly narrow subfield are unable to um, judge whether you're correct or not. So you are only able to be judged by this incredibly small amount of your mm. peers who are also experts in whatever niche area you study. Um, and it's on that basis that we come to truth on that so the university has to create structures of freedoms around which we can act in the best interest of seeking scientific knowledge and knowledge about the world and and so forth so it's actually really powerful and really significant in that particular academic freedom and
0: context uh, th- the thing for me and why this is so important to highlight is that you asked at the start Chris you know why didn't JC, JCU accept this. And so it's not just this is how they instructed their lawyers. It is conceivable that they really did not get this. Mm. And this is why credit to the National Tertiary Education Union, Correct. as as Tim Dodd uh, said in The Australian Today, for making sure this was in the EBA clause. But I think this this is a pretty thin uh, sort of line against um, uh, the, the sort of approach of a JCU because... Um, you need deep pockets and thankfully mm. Peter Ridd and his friends, including some of the people in this room, were able to help with this um, to raise the money to take it to court um, and also uh, it leaves open that it might be constructed differently by a dip, uh, by a different court. So, so my point is uh, we won't go back into it today but we have also talked about the French Review and that's why uh, all credit to the EBA and what the unions negotiated but I would sleep much more comfortably if... Uh, a federal government uh, assisted universities, encouraged universities in establishing, a, uh, if you like, a code of conduct or some measure which privileged academic freedom and freedom of speech on campus, generally at a much, much higher level than just the EBA.
1: Well, that's the public policy question that we actually have to consider now. The the only reason we are where we are is because of the good graces of the NTEU of all the... Organisations And that's not to have a go at them. I say yeah, good, no, on good them them as well. Yep. But look, I am the last person to be calling for the tighter regulation of anything. But the fact of the matter is, and, and you know, this would be different if universities or wholly private institutions that could do what they like. The fact of the matter is we pay billions of dollars each and every year to create public squares of higher learning. The least we can do as taxpayers is expect they do their job and be free speech zones. And if that requires federal legislation, then that's a road we may have to go down.
2: There's an interesting part in the judgment which i would actually briefly like to talk about and it's about the ipa <laughs> um uh and this is close to uh again aaron and my heart yeah. because peter ridd was accused by the university of having a conflict of interest and at my understanding of that accusation was that he had a conflict of interest because he published something in a book published by the ipa he wrote for the ipa once um happily the judge completely rejected this, claiming that it was an extremely peculiar finding. The university argues that Peter Ridd preferred his own interests and the IPA's interests, and this was in a conflict of interest. But this is quoting from the judge. I repeatedly asked counsel for the university to tell me what the conflict of interest actually was, but try as he might, conf- counsel was unable to do so. Um, I could understand if there was an allegation that Peter had declined to fulfill his duties, but there are no allegations of this sort. So it turns out, Aaron, it turns out that... Simply to do something with the Institute of Public Affairs and to be an academic is not, on the face of it, a conflict of interest. So we're fine.
3: Well, <laughs> Good to know. Uh, I'm pleased about that, Chris, because here I am today uh, on a a, appearing on the podcast um, for the IPA. Have you or have you ever um, written
2: something for the Institute r- of Public Affairs? Right,
3: right. Um, well, have you or have you ever or have you ever been a member of the IPA? Yes, yeah, something like that. Well, look, um, I, I got to say. Um, When I read that paragraph in the judgment, I immediately took myself um, back into my company law tutorials because one of the duties of a company director uh, is not to have a conflict of interest or not to act on that or or to disclose those those conflicts of interest. And something I'm saying to my students all the time is you can't just wave around the flag of conflict of interest. You actually have to enunciate what the conflict is. Is there has to actually be a material conflict, and the university well, wasn't on. able to do that. Well, that, hold most on. that basic. needs explaining to law students. You, know, yeah, you, know. <laughs> Don't you have to say what <laughs> your substantive complaint is, right? I mean, you know, th- this, this seems extraordinary. This seems to me to be one of the most basic things to grasp, and yet, um, you know, it, it seems to be that the, the party just couldn't put that. Um, submission and um, i mean it's 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 baffling as to why that submission even even proceeded to trial um but um but there it is But why would that claim exist so isn't it
2: interesting that i mean it's it strikes me as a political attack Mm. on peter ridd yeah um unambiguously so because just the name the institute of public affairs created in his vicinity uh, as far as i'm aware he he just wrote a Piece for a book,
3: right? Yeah. Uh, that's that's yep. what that was. So it was published by an independent publisher. Published by,
2: by an, yeah. Um, uh, he, he just wrote a piece for a book, mm. and that was enough because of you know the the brand, yeah,
1: to to make this claim against. But, but that's that's the whole thing. I mean, look, let's face it; those guys just don't like us. Okay, fair enough. Um, and but what an extraordinary thing to say, just because a a member of your academic staff has an affiliation and a relationship with an organisation with which that, that you just don't like then you can start bringing in legalese uh, conflict of interest and everything else and trying to it, it, it's an extraordinary indictment on the narrowness of the JCU administrator it's,
3: it's also um, sorry Chris it's also a key function um, of university academics now is um, is engagement uh, and impact and you know there's all these debates on what the difference between engagement and impact are um, but, but a lot of academics Fascinating. you know it's fascinating, <laughs> but you know, as, as academics, we're encouraged to you know in, engage with uh, with public policy uh, and and those sorts of things um, emanating out of the research areas that we're involved in and our teaching areas, and so this is something that has been driven um, by the highest levels of education policy in this country. And so um, that requires academics to be engaging with bodies like the Institute of Appa- uh, Public Affairs, uh, the Australia Institute, um, perhaps on <laughs> on uh, on other matters. You know, so um, academics are going to um, you know team up with whoever they've got connections with, uh, and that's that's a good thing for disseminating research. Mm. Um, it's it's getting out of the ivory tower. And it's pushing out that research where it might actually be consumed by the the general public. Because I tell you what, uh, some of these uh, these journal articles don't get read by that many people. <laughs> don't say
2: that. Blow me down. That. Um, no, no, just to just to wrap that up. Uh, so so that that is a direction from not just the highest levels of the education department, but the highest levels of the federal government. Right. Um, and the national innovation and science agenda in twenty fifteen made this major change to how universities are supposed to operate, which is that they have to focus on impact and engagement. I've got a press release from Education Minister Dan Tian from March this year, which says this, the people who pay for university research, that is the Australian taxpayers, want to know their money is delivering results that are saving lives, strengthening the economy and improving our quality of living. And it is that sort of thing that Peter Ridd was trying to do by sharing his research publicly. This is what academics are paid and should be paid to do for now.
3: And I think that's the key thing is that the, the, the chapter that he wrote was connected with the research that he does. Mm. And I think that's a reasonable limit on the exercise of academic freedom, that there has to be some connection there between uh, you, you know, what, you're, what you're publishing, how you're engaging in public policy and what your expertise might be. Um, but th- those two things were fundamentally in this case connected.
0: Absolutely. Speaking of guilt by association, <laughs> oh, how's, how's that for a segue yeah, or right. attempted segue? Um, you can score it later. Um, we have in America uh, a, a report, not a court judgment, but in this case the release of the report on the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election in two volumes under the name of Special Counsel Robert S. Muller III, um, March 2019, Chris. Yeah, so we spoke um, about
2: the letter that Attorney General William Barr released uh, late March when Andrew Bushnell and Evan Mulholland were on. Now we have the final Mueller report, or at least a redacted version of the final Mueller report. There's there's a few redactions in it, but it doesn't look too heavily redacted. So the two headline findings um, on the collusion question. Uh, Collusion isn't a legal term, but Mueller did not find a criminal. Conspiracy, um, but he did find a significant pattern of sort of interference and outreach from Russia, and some enthusiasm by the campaign for that outreach. On the obstruction question, did Donald Trump obstruct justice in? the um, search for that criminal conspiracy. Mueller declined to make a determination either way on a couple of grounds, but one of the main ones was Department of Justice guidelines that you don't start a sitting president and you probably shouldn't lay out criminal charges that you're not going to prosecute. Another interesting part of this was that um, uh, I- the obstruction case against Trump would be a lot clearer if his staff had followed his direct instructions to do so. So, I think there's a lot to talk about the Mueller report. And of course the United States is going in an absolute furor about this. All sides of politics have their different takeaways. Um, I I think we should go around the table and bring out what our views are. But I think one of my big takeaways from reading The report, and I haven't read the whole report, I have to admit, but the extent of the Russian attempted interference. Now, I don't think that this interference really made a difference to the election, but it was really very extensive. And the one thing, we're all familiar with the the sort of sock puppets on social media and so forth. But what really struck me is, and this hadn't really resonated before, the Internet Research Agency, a Russian um, independent agency connected to the Russian government, organised political rallies in the United States starting with a pro-confederacy rally in 2015 but dozens of rallies some of which drew hundreds hundreds of attendees now i I, i'm we're we're all familiar with these claims that you know lefty rallies are set up by you know evil foreign influences and so forth and and no doubt that that's true in some cases but this is
0: like this is real that's quite extraordinary to me and 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 very concerning and uh what, what it's The history that it sets out, their work through the Internet Research Agency, and they had, they had accounts with you know, hundreds of thousands of followers, and, and you know, some of them bodgy, but some of them real. And um, before they, they settled down to the Stop Hillary part of the campaign, which probably started in 2015, and long before Trump was really seen as a realistic uh, presidential con- contender, what the Russians were doing was sowing social division in the U.S., and, and this is absolutely fascinating. So, they, they for instance, all, some of the rallies they were organising were, one was for the Confederates. You know, come on, Confederates, good old southern boys, you know, let's have a rally in favour of white people. Meanwhile, they also had a group targeting African-Americans Amer- African called Blacklist. And they even started running self-defence classes so that you could protect yourself against the police. And then, of course, they, they beat up the stories about it so that um, the obverse... Uh, um, people watching all this would get really upset and, and just feel it. And that's because Putin's out there trying to, you know, say that Western democracies failed and, you know, his model of authoritarianism is the only way to go. So long before they settled on, let's get Hillary, which they certainly did, um, it was just part of trying to stuff America right up.
2: Is there any believe, reason to believe that it mattered in any long-term sense, apart from just we're offended by the fact that they're trying to interfere?
0: I must admit, I'm it, it's shaken me a bit. I was probably of the view that um, uh, Trump would have won anyway, as I certainly don't buy this idea that uh, Trump's uh, the success of Trump's campaign was in, in any way due to this. But the second part of what the Russians did, which was hacking Hillary's email, the Podesta emails, and having this sort of staggered release of, of, um, of emails during the campaign. So this was obtained by Russian military intelligence. I feel like I'm back in the Cold War talking about the GRU, um, that really did uh, a lot of damage to Hillary's campaign and allowed uh, and allowed a lot of narrative around that. So I must admit it's shaken me a bit, Chris. Aaron, what's your takeaway?
3: Look, um, I've got to say I've always been um, a bit bored by uh, all, <laughs> Thank all these uh, Russian collusion stuff because I just think yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll, 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 a lot of this stuff is... Uh, on uh, on the the left of American politics, it's not wanting to accept the outcome of the election. Uh, on the right, it's it's trying to sort of you know vindicate uh, the the sort of the the, the Trumpists, um, and so I, I I sort of come at this report with that that context. Um, I've always been you know particularly bored by it. I was similarly surprised though I, I think to learn the extensive um, involvement of the Russian government into. Uh, the, the, really the the cyber attacking uh, and and then subsequent leaking of information that that for me uh, I I think highlights um, that there there is a problem there um, I, I'm not necessarily sure what the sol- this report gives no solution to that um, but there certainly is a uh, really a foreign policy problem there that does need to be solved um, and, and and so um, that's that's one point. Um, The 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 second point that I that I found fascinating um, was, you know, again this distinction uh, or or this use of the term collusion. um, Collusion is, as you um, said at the outset, Chris, is not really a legal term um, in in this in in these sorts of cases. Uh, It's it's a it's a legal term when we talk about economic torts um, you know like um, you know collusion in the economic sense um, of two firms trying to you know put up prices or those sorts of things. On, on this level what the underlying crime uh, is uh, here is conspiracy, although that in itself needs an underlying crime. You can't just conspire for the sake of conspiring, you need to conspire to do something. And to be a bit of a boring law professor, um, the the oh the reason we have a, a crime of conspiracy is to solve an information problem. So um, th- think about uh, th- think about a murder, for instance, just as a really easy. Um, easy example: If you've got two people that, that come together and agree, uh, you know, Chris and I are going to agree to assassinate Gideon, and um, it'll be the first and you won't be the last. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and and Gideon uh, is is shot, uh, and and we have a gun, uh, but we have no evidence about um, about who owns the gun, and there's dual fingerprints, and and so that there, there, there might be a dispute as to who pulled the trigger. And there might be enough reasonable doubt that uh, I might say Chris did it and Chris might say that I did it. And so there's reasonable doubt and we both get off. What conspiracy allows uh, to happen is that we don't need to make a finding that either I pulled the trigger or or Chris pulled the trigger. We just need to make the finding that uh, a trigger was pulled by somebody and we had an agreement before the trigger was pulled um, that that crime was committed. And so applied here... While we have uh, the the Trump campaign team wanting, you know, the, these th- things leaked and we have the Russian government clearly or at least an arm, uh, you know, barely an arm's distance away from the Russian government uh, involved in hacking and, and then leaking material. Um, just because the interests are the same and just because even one side makes expressions that, hey, wouldn't it be great? Mm. Um, the, 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 there's no suggestion that the Trump campaign had any ability um, to carry out that underlying offence, yep. and so I, I think that was that was something that um, is just seems to be lost in mm. the public discussion. It's a critical finding, you yeah. know is is that is that not, not only do you want, not only do you need to move past wanting the same outcome, but you need to actually have some sort of level of agreement and participation in the underlying crime. And that was never going to be there, mm. ever. Yeah, never. and
2: it's really indicative reading through the report that, that y- they never get close to finding anything of the sort, which is why we're stuck with Donald Trump. Try Price. as they yeah. might.
0: Like the, comic Ru- statements. the Russians mm. wanted to do this anyway. correct? correct. And, and they, that's the point. That correct. is the key point.
1: Well, yeah, I'm on a unity ticket with Aaron. I mean, this issue, I've, I haven't followed all that closely. To be honest, there are a lot of other things that I've followed. And every time I do a you know, something on Sky or whatever, and it comes, I'm like, oh, no, what am I going to say about Mueller now? And I usually just <laughs> dial up Bushy and he gives me my talking points. But look, <laughs> for, for what it's worth, it's always struck me as just a gigantic political Rorschach test. Um, as Aaron said, those on the left who hate Trump are using it to, you know, assage their feelings of, uh, sadness that Hillary lost and trying to justify it and rationalise it. Those on the right see it as this big conspiracy to get Trump and everything else. But in the end, the result has come out and, it, and it's been a whimper. I'm, I'm, I agree that what the Russians are up to is a very concerning thing and that's a serious foreign policy question for not just for the u.s for the entire free world right. um but the, you know that well there was a bit of smoke there's no fire here and and I, and it was always thin i mean look like you go back to the steel dossier that was obtained by the hillary clinton campaign uh that yeah and republicans were actually pushing the fbi to investigate the outlandish claims made in that like trump hired russian prostitutes and did unspeakable acts in a bed that barack obama once slept in uh that uh a state-owned gas company was prepared to give billions of dollars to the Trump campaign in, um, in, in exchange for lifting lifting sanctions. I mean, it, all the the, 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 the FBI admitted. You know, James Comey's FBI admitted that they were there were no way they could possibly ever verify it so it was always going to be uh, a non-event uh, and now the left are saying oh well you know he directed his uh, staff to to do x y and z you know trump is a rough guy he is not a guy <laughs> who respects procedure and the tr- traditions and trappings no, none do his staff turns of, out yeah, well, well, <laughs> well correct no. but you know but the, you know that's part of his appeal he because he in the words of you know the facebook manager, he moves fast and breaks things are uh, we can worry that trump uh, you know, is is being Trump. And fundamentally, you know, there was no determination made on obstruction of justice. But I feel like I'm missing something. How can you obstruct justice against something that you actually didn't do? Well, uh, you can, actually. Oh, okay. Th- this is the
0: point. Well, this was the, the question. So, uh, and Chris alluded to it at the start. So the report is in two volumes. So the first is mm. about, you know, collusion conspiracy with the Russians. And it's basically like there's nothing there. Like the Russians were doing it anyway. Mm. Uh, Trump's people were pretty unethical in terms of just saying, yeah, please give us those stolen emails, yeah. but there's no offence there either. It's not yeah. tangible property, so it's not receiving stolen goods. Mm. But the second volume is all about how Trump behaved when the investigation was underway. And as uh, as Chris said, if the staff had have listened to Trump when he said, you have to stop this any way you can, they would actually be in a lot more trouble than they actually are. And uh, they clearly they have a way of um, dealing with the big man, which is a bit of ducking and weaving and... Uh, the, there's one guy who was supposed to deliver a message to Sessions and just didn't get around to it. Didn't get around to <laughs> it. And then when Trump reminded Forgot. him, yep. he's like, he tried to get somebody else to deliver it. And uh, yeah, you know, there are ways of just hiding when when somebody like Trump is on the warpath.
3: I just think you know how much of this is a bit of you know almost sort of entrapment. Oh, okay, we, we we know that we know that Trump you know sort of acts like this. And so let's let's sort of you know come up with some investigation. And we won't we'll never get him on the main point, but we might get him. on... <laughs> On the, <laughs> yeah, you know. It's completely circular.
1: That's a pattern for these special counsel investigations. Look at what happened to Bill Clinton. Um, the Ken Starr investigation was originally set up to investigate Whitewater and they went on and on and on and didn't find anything in relation to the Whitewater scandal. But lo and behold, Monica Lewinsky comes out of the woodwork and suddenly the, tra- the machinery of that investigation was redirected at that. They, they tend to be uh, these sort of, a bit like a Royal Commission, these broad-ranging investigations that sort of are... are solutions or searches in, in, in search of a problem.
2: Well, in, in the meantime, and, and, and that's a really good um, point, we are moving towards what looks like, from the Democrat side, an impeachment mm-hmm. proceeding. So they have the numbers in the House. There's more and more drumbeats. Nancy Pelosi um, has said that she's not super excited about this, but there are more and more young Democrats or young Democrat members who are calling for impeachment. And, and in my mind, it seems like no doubt there will be an attempt at an impeachment Um Uh, during this term. I mean, is this the right response by the Democrats from their perspective? Obviously, we have our views about what the Mueller report found and didn't find. But from a Democrat perspective, who who Donald Trump is the enemy, number one, is this the right thing to do? I think there's a
1: macro point to be made about why the Democrats are so... um Desperate to, for impeachment, desperate to win in twenty twenty. I think it's because the trappings of government and of office have become so cushy and so wonderful that um, when you're out of government, it really sucks. <laughs> so and that, that's why we're so any and all bipartisanship of the past, respect for the office and everything else, goes completely out the window because they are so desperate to win, they'll win at any cost. Same thing happens happens here. Any. Bipartisanship of old, you know, I'm not a big believer in the fact that our politics is more nasty and everything else than it ever has been. I think politics is always generally pretty nasty. But if there is any truth to it, it is because, uh, because politicians are so desperate to be in office, not because they're desperate to actually necessarily fulfil their agenda, but they want their white cars and their blue carpet. It's a very, very worrying thing about our democracy. My
3: take on this is that I think there's a disconnect between the race at the top of the ticket and races at the bottom of the ticket, and what I mean by that is that if you're a young, uh, democratic, uh, you know, member of the Congress. And you got an election coming up. You know you've got only got two-year terms, right? You got to you got to keep up that energy. And so, if you're in a really strong sort of democratic area, um, what your electorate want you to do is beat up on Trump. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're seen as this sort of leader agitating for an impeachment process, and you know that's that's a really good thing for your electorate. But I don't think it does the top of the ticket any favors. In that, um, I I think that. Probably more um, uh, empowers uh, the Trump supporters uh, and and Trump's message of oh look you know they're, they're going to do anything they can't accept the victory etc cetera, etc. Cetera. I, I think it amplifies Trump's message on that a huge amount and so um, yeah I, I think there's a real disconnect there between what's in the best interests of that member of Congress and perhaps what's in the best me- uh, interests of uh, the Democratic. Um, presidential campaign
0: absolutely i'd have to agree with that and the, what volume two did and and this is the opening towards impeachment it basically said you know there's there's nothing uh, that allows for criminal charges of obstruction of justice here and they say well look and it's really confusing because he's the president and he is the head of the executive and he is allowed to give orders because that's actually his job um and but i'll essentially left an open finding there if the Democrats run on volume two of the Mueller report, there is it is just so thin that mm. they could not make it stick and it would actually fall apart. If they do pursue it, I think but it would they don't, be disastrous they don't, for them.
2: They don't, have to, they don't have to prove it to the satisfaction of a court. No. They don't have to prove it to the satisfaction. Uh, to, they don't have to prove a crime. It doesn't yeah, matter. I, it's, impeachment is a political
0: process. Yeah, well, well can, I think there's just not enough raw material there. There's just not enough raw material to sustain that in the court of public what, opinion. What
2: they will do, and and my my suspicion about the strategy from here, is you take the Mueller report and you take the most damning parts of the Mueller report um, and then you add all the other stuff that goes on in the Trump White House and various things and some of it legitimate, some of it illegitimate, some of it scandalous, some of it a beat up. You just lump it all together and you say – unfit for office. No, I'm, and not, I'm,
0: I'm with Aaron. I don't see how that helps so, the Democrat well, presidential I, I candidate. No,
2: it
3: probably doesn't help to, the presidential candidate. <laughs> to, 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 to argue against myself here, I think the, 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 the best argument on my view that doesn't help the top of the ticket... Are
0: you worried just because I was agreeing with you? No, like, not at all. Because now you I,
3: I, 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 I thought of an argument against myself, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which which is this, that it, it, it would, though, um, distract Trump Right. It, it would completely distract the administration from prosecuting their agenda to all of a sudden, the, you know, the, the whole outfit is going to be tied up doing this stuff. Yeah. You know, so I, I still think it completely empowers their political message from a macro point of view, but from a, at least on a micro day to day basis, they're going to be consumed by this overwhelming process. Um, and so, yeah, does that help the Democrats a little bit? Yes. Um, uh, does it help the macro stuff?
0: wonder watch I suspect this won't be the last time we're talking talking about impeachment of Trump uh, closer to home uh, get up they love federal elections they and do love federal elections Scott
2: well, who um, doesn't? so get up as we all know is a um, social movement it describes itself as a social movement it's a nonprofit organization launched way back in 2005 with a board that at the time had Bill Shorten and John Hewson demonstrating that John Hewson will join literally anything you put in front of him. <laughs> um, get up this year, however, now claims to have a war chest of twelve point seven million dollars. It says it's got more than a million members, but in fact, it's it's got well, it's still got a very large number of individual donors, sixty five thousand individual. Donors, most of which it says are small donors. GetUp has been outside my train station. GetUp has been everywhere. It's targeting specific. Members of Parliament, the ones that it describes as the hard right, and then for some reason Josh Frydenberg, um, <laughs> which they didn't really understand. But I mean, the the question that this raises um, for I think the centre right and libertarians and classical liberals and conservatives is this is now it seems to be a major electoral force. How should we respond to get up? It strikes me as there's two two approaches. We could copy them. Or we could regulate them, or something else. Well, I'll
1: tell you. I, I will. On, the, I think absolutely the former. I, 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 we can talk about what we should do. I'll tell you what we absolutely should not do. Um, we absolutely have to resist these calls from people on the right to regulate, to uh, people who are raising all sorts of concerns about so-called transparency, foreign money being involved, and everything else. Uh, as a matter of principle, uh, you know, I don't like get ups messaging at all. I don't like their methods at all. I don't like um, the, the fact that they're targeting you know, good people like Josh Frydenberg and Nicole Flint and Peter Dutton at all. But this is a free country. Uh, we believe in freedom of speech. No matter how much we detest the message, uh, we have to defend to the death their right to disseminate it. Uh, and, and that includes... Don't, the matter of donations, and I've said many times and in, in over many subjects, you know, political donations are a form of political speech. Not every political political free speech is more than just um, literally speaking about something. It is supporting a political party as well or a political movement, whether it be handing out how to vote cards, whether it be door knocking, or whether it be supporting your local MP and giving them fifteen hundred bucks down the road because you like what they're doing. We cannot relent on our principles on this, and I don't think it would even work if we try to do it anyway. So what should we do, Aaron? Look, it's it's a
3: it's a great question, um, and I, I think on the sort of the, the center right of politics, uh, I think something that's sort of characterized uh, the center right is just the ability to fight amongst itself. Um, and, you know, this podcast if, is a perfect example. Of
0: right. Right.
3: <laughs> um, but, you know, th- th- there's, there's like a there's a meme. Aaron
0: even argues with himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can never, no wonder this right, right. can't but, get attacked together.
3: You know, but, but there's a libertarian meme, which is, you know, essentially all about libertarians um, criticizing each other rather than actually, um, you know, you know, criticizing people that they might otherwise disagree with um so i i I think that's that's one element of it and i think um that there needs to be more and more efforts to bring um as you say conservatives classical liberals libertarians together to um, move forward similar things um uh, that's why the, the the work of you know organizations like the ipa and the australian taxpayers alliance and um you know, uh, in in WA, uh, there's the WA taxpayers uh, and 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 so on and so forth. Um, so I, th- I think those those efforts are, are good, but I I got to say uh, that they they probably need to be amped up a lot more. Um, the, the the second thing that I think um, we need to do uh, is really people being in more involved in the political process. Mm. I, I think. On the centre-right, typically people that vote for perhaps the Liberal Party and other sort of centre-right parties aren't activists within those parties um, particularly. Whereas on the left side of politics, um, a huge proportion of, of the activists are union members uh, and, and are actively involved in the political process in that way. We don't see a similar structure on the right, and I, I think that mm. th- th- there there needs to be something to to engage in that process. I don't know if the answer are, are, are things like, uh, you know, some parties have, have toyed with the idea of primaries and those sorts of things. Uh, I You know, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I think... Those efforts to incorporate a bit more activity.
1: You raise a great structural issue in, in you know, counter you know, there's been talk of right wing get up for about 10 years now and Austra- Austra- advanced Australia, I must say, are making some decent inroads but the big structural issue we have is that people who tend to vote liberal people on the right broadly tend to have lives they have families, right. jobs <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, you know, other interests people on the left generally don't have those things Well, they, um, they, they, don't want they, they have jobs but the jobs allow them to also oh, yeah, do yeah, things, things like, like this. this But demographically speaking they tend to be people who can you know take off work and stand outside the news court building wearing a silly costume and a sign um and still be that's the problem generally people on our side just want to be left alone to make a buck raise their family blah 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 but the problem we have is that you know if you don't take an interest in politics politics takes an interest in you so i suppose part of our challenge is to explain to people look you better Give up your Sunday to come and hand out how to vote cards or something. Otherwise, they're going to come after your uh, franking credits or whatever. The but hell but, but Isn't I think, the think
0: genius. So sorry, Chris. I just I just wanted to go back to Advance Australia, which which is um, uh, being denominated as a as a right wing get up. But as you say, it's, it's not entirely symmetrical. But it's a good example, though. Uh, of the ability to run campaigning organisations, and that's and that's what GetUp is essentially a campaigning yeah. organisation. They'll pick an issue or they'll they'll pick a candidate to run against, and it's, it's multi-level. There's um uh they've, they've got enough money for advertising, so they do that. They run push polls, which they then get run in the media. They even have you know tame pollers, who are a company owned by the union movement. They can do all of these. These things. So there are opportunities on the right for campaigning organisations. It doesn't have to be Advance Australia, but certainly that's in the space trying to do something at the moment and doing a good job. It's not necessarily that you have to get hundreds of people out on the streets. That's just one part of campaigning. Now, now this is where I think we get uh, the centre right
2: badly misunderstands GetUp. Because yes, it's a campaigning organisation, but it's not a campaigning organisation in the way most people on the centre-right imagine a campaigning organisation to function. So we often think of campaigning as exactly like Advance Australia is. Very, very high quality, very um, you know elite campaigners building a campaign that's got advertisements and billboards and so forth. Now, GetUp has all that, but that's actually secondary to what GetUp does mm-hmm. structurally how it is built get up basically is a whole bunch of old biddies meeting together in each other's <laughs> lounge rooms to talk about how much they dislike peter dutton and Nicole Flint and Erica Betts and all these sort of people they get together and they've got this they are very they are top down they are they are directed and they're, you know the um, head of get up you know has has talking points and they produce um, uh, they print stuff in Sydney and they send it to all the states and all that sort of thing but the strength of them is that, that they are actually they are literally a grassroots organization, that they are a large collection of many thousands and thousands of people. Now, if the center-right tries to match that, I don't think we're going to be successful for precisely the reasons that Gideon's pointed out, that we have many better things to do. But on the other hand, just turning around and saying we need another professional campaigning organization to match all the other professional campaigning organization, I don't think that I don't think that's going to work. We are in a world where it is – the left and right are not symmetrical. Mm. They are not – they don't have symmetrical voters. So we need asymmetrical approaches to to these things. And sometimes it means you operate through, um, you know, something like GetUp. Sometimes you have professional campaigning organizations. Sometimes you just try to influence the ideas,
0: in the space like free market think tanks can i I put a question to you chris so so looking at the broad sweep of history i mean once upon a time the broadest (laughs) well the the liberal party had you know say it had over a hundred thousand members the 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 old country party would have had hundreds of thousands of members and um the bearers of ideas on the center right have historically been parties and that's one of the reasons why it doesn't have this sort of mass civil base in australia that you that you do see in other countries and and it actually needs much more of it whereas what as uh, political parties have uh, shed members, become sort of hollowed out institutions, um, the, the left has adapted in a sense. By saying well, rather than join the Labour Party, I'll get involved in something like GetUp, which is also non-denominational. You can be green or Labour or yeah. swap between. You no, you so just basically progressive. That's a
2: hundred percent right. And now the the left have suffered this as well because another big part of that um was the union movement. Union movement, uh, just like the Labour Party, was a community um that you would join and you would you know you'd meet a partner or um a wife or a husband through joining the union or joining the Labor Party just as you would join the Liberal Party. Um, to Aaron's point, though, I mean, GetUp does precisely what we wanted political parties to do. They are a medium through which you engage like-minded political people. It's not that we, it's not that people are getting involved in the Labor Party pre-selection. They're not getting involved in Labor Party pre selections Now, they're getting involved in GetUp, or at least a certain type of person is getting involved in get up as that as that sense well they,
3: they're getting involved though in a Labor Party campaign or a Greens campaign but they don't quite know it no no that's you true. know so when, when these people are making phone calls um, into Kuyong saying falsely that Josh Frydenberg you know um, teamed up with Peter Dudden to get rid of Malcolm Turnbull <laughs> which is just demonstrably false right it's literally made up it's
1: literally I, the opposite I'd give him a lot of credit if he did by the way
3: <laughs> you know um, and, and so when people are doing that, um, they're not. That um, they are campaigning for the Greens and, and ultimately a Labor government. That's exactly what they are doing. Yeah. Even though that no, are they going to Labor Party headquarters to do that? No, are they going to the Greens headquarters? No, um, are they pretty much a ca- campaigning outfit of both of those parties? Absolutely, yes.
2: Yeah, but we shouldn't treat them as such because they are literally not.
3: Members like so. So the debate no. So what, what, what the political parties have done is found a way to mobilise these people without getting them to join the actual party.
1: Yeah, That's a think, good trick. I think it's also a function of. The political parties have shed members partly because they failed to move with the times because political parties were basically, you know, community organisations. And the days when if you felt strongly about something, you would go down to your local branch of the such and such society and sit in a church hall and talk about it with other people in real Life are, are fading these days. If people are concerned about something, they tend to engage online. And what the get up has done, um, apart from you know having the old biddies talking about how much they hate Dutton, they have been early adopters in using online techniques to mobilise people to get data, to get mailing lists, to get people to feel like they're a part of it by signing an automated petition that gets ignored by a staffer and deleted. You know things like that.
2: Yeah. No. And and to to go back to Scott's point about the long sweep of history, it's it's important to remember that when there were these mass political parties, when tens of thousands of members of the Liberal Party um, uh, in, in every city, um, that wasn't really because people were passionate about specific public policy at the mm-hmm. time. It was actually just part of your identity. Correct. Um, you are a, a member of the Liberal Party. You're in a Liberal community or a Labour community. And so that was how you would socialise. And I, I suspect that where in, in this in the getup space for a very niche group of people but for a significantly large group of people getup provides that it's just part of your identity i'm interested in politics ooh that that peter dutton is quite bad i'll um i'll i'll hang out and and pass
0: out Things at the train station, making up stories about Josh. I yep. hope our our listeners are getting that sense of solidarity just from listening to Looking Forward. I'm sure that <laughs> right on. <laughs> it's we're we're really building that community yeah. right here. <laughs> yeah,
3: but I mean, th- th- there's a wider society point though as well. In that, um, you know, yes, political parties have gone from tens of thousands of members to to thousands of members, but you see the same thing across, you know, the the scouting movement and the yeah. lines and the rotary, rotary clubs yeah. and the, and, the, and the churches. You know, so it's a in th- there is a wider Sort of society trend there that um, the political parties have just fallen into. I don't think they're the, I don't think they're, they're the cause, um, but it's a it's a wider wider trend. Yep,
0: yep. M- much much. Uh, and of course, we'll see how it keeps playing out in the federal election. We have come to the final part of our show, which is our books and culture segment, where we talk about what we've been uh, listening to or watching or reading. Uh, who would like to lead off? I'll
2: give you a go. Um, so the book that I read over Easter. Very appropriately, was a new translation of the New Testament by David Bentley Hart. David Bentley Hart. Oh,
1: hold on, you read the entire New Testament over Easter?
2: Um, yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm. I, look, I read most of it. I have to okay. say, I didn't get it all the way <laughs> through, but you know, I'm still reading it. So, um, uh, it was published late in 2017. Hart is with the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Study at the University of Notre Dame. What's interesting about this and why you would read a, a new translation of the New Testament is he has translated, or he says he's translating it, is as if doctrine is not given. He's got a big focus on directly translating rather than translating to for literary merits, or it, his argument is this, that he's not trying to conform to any particular interpretation, which is his claim about all the other translations Um that have been going around for a very long time. Um, uh, He emphasizes on how the New Testament books were written for their original readers. So for example, and how it would be read by the original readers, trying to translate that for us. So um, one example is this. He translates the Greek word that is usually translated to us as church into the word assembly. Um, and the result and and he makes all these decisions across the across the books. The result is um a very sometimes really awkward um translation. sometimes it's very poorly written, which he says reflects the sometimes poorly written original Greek, but it's very raw and brusque and it's um an entirely new way. I'm not a religious person, but I found it um really interesting and appealing. It's very deliberately bare bones. Hart argues that what he discovered from his translation is um, Christ's intense radicalism, dismissiveness of um, social mores, and I'll quote um, his introduction. "It says, the early generations of Christians were an association of extremists, radical in their rejection of the values and priorities of society, not just at society's most degenerate, but also its most reasonable and decent. Anyway, it's a really fascinating read. And really interesting, and Aaron is staring at me like he's got a lot to say.
3: Oh, I've got so much to say, but I, I, you know, where where to start? Where to start? I mean, you, you get all those reflections from reading, you know, the actual gospels, um, by the way. Um, but not uh, to take aside, uh, yeah, not, not not to take aside. But I, I just don't understand how you can strip something of, of meaning. You know, uh, okay, let's let's take your example. Let's let's replace the word church with assembly. Um, but we can import all those things that were you know that we understand about the theology of church uh, in in terms of uh, of of membership in terms of uh, an institution in terms of you know what would be called the body of Christ um, and we we can import those same doctrinal ideas to a different word so i kind of i, I kind of get what i i kind of get what he's doing but at the same time i don't think it matters yeah
2: well i mean that might be so so the argument for translating Church into assembly, or the word that is usually translated as church into into assembly, is because the word church now we've had two thousand years of um, built-up idea about what a church is, and rather than um, uh, taking, r- rather than presenting to readers that built-up concept of church, then use a word that he would say is just as adequate given the Greek. Okay. The Greek original and and, assembly. and uh, First, so that is, does two things: it it takes you away from that built up meaning, and it also it just slightly alienates you from it. So you read it new, and that's that's a big part of his claim. And I'm not saying that this is okay, a perfect so translation. Is, is, but
3: is, is this? I guess then that's that's probably fair enough if that's designed for a completely secular audience not wanting to import. Um, i guess bad but sure, ideas of the church surely everyone's
0: interested uh christians would be interested in the original greek text and 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 alternative translations of that but i mean uh, unless, unless you accept the absolute authoritative nature like say the the, the catholic church and the vulgate bible you know where it's or the um or the equivalent in the anglican tradition unless you just accept that that is the translation and that's the end of the story wouldn't wouldn't any inquiring christian be interested in well absolutely the translation? Which, which which is why in any you know
3: theology degree you know you you, you go back to the original text and that and they mm. they teach people you know ancient greek and ancient hebrew and, and those sorts of things um, but when when you yeah I, 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 as i say that the the term you know church in a theological sense um, is is different to you know how you'd use that in everyday no, parlance? That's a
0: great pick, Chris. We managed to argue just yep. for, on one word,
1: Imagine, <laughs> and there's a whole translation there waiting for yeah. us. <laughs> how about you, Kitty? Yeah. So I watched the other night um, on Foxtel, which everybody should subscribe to to access the Patriotic Sky News Network. Um, <laughs> I watched on Foxtel, uh, BBC First a program called Brexit: The Uncivil War. And when I watched it, I thought to myself, "Oh God, this makes you know the ABC looks like look like." Fox News. Um, it turns out to be an HBO telemovie. And um, it, it, it's this, uh, it, it's sort of the, the it, it's like Ocean's Eleven meets House of Cards. It presents this ragtag group of sort of misfits. And, you know, a lot of our friends get a mention uh, like Nigel Farage, Dan Hannon, etc. All of whom you've interviewed. G- correct, correct. Yeah, um, yeah. Who have basically set out to manipulate and hoodwink the entire British people. And there were all sorts of, you know, scenes of, uh, meetings on park benches and in public art galleries, whispering about data that might be used by you know a shadowy firm that can target individual voters based on social media platforms oh, because nobody from the left has ever done that. No one's ever um, thought of that. And yeah. it shows the, the main guy who ran the campaign, Dominic Cummings, at the end having this epiphany and this crisis of conscience that he unleashed the forces of xenophobia in Britain that can't be put back in its box and everything else. So a complete hatchet on Brexit... All of that said, it was really, really good. <laughs> really, really good viewing. So, I highly recommend and it.
2: Fascinating fictional movie. Take
1: it, with, take it with a whole bag of salt, but yeah, go settle in and enjoy.
0: Man, it. Uh, great pick. And uh, yeah, the, one movie where the good guys, uh, uh, good guys win at least for at least for a while. Um, we might uh, finish with Aaron because he's got another movie. But um, yeah, mine uh, is a book. Uh, it was originally 2004, and then the edition. Uh, that popularised it was uh, 2008, Roads to Modernity, the British, French and American Enlightenments by Gertrude Himmelfarb. Why I have, I read this at the time and I've been quoting it without being able to find it and then I, I, I got a copy in the uh, secondhand bookshop the other day and the reason why I've been quoting it is uh, there is an argument I, I hear from time to time, from about two desks away, that, you know, the Enlightenment's overrated, you know, reason... Uh, the privileging of reason, the age of reason, you know, led to the terror in the French Revolution. You know, could, lineage could be traced all the way to the right, Holocaust. Happened
1: before the didn't happen before the Enlightenment.
0: Indeed, indeed. And uh, my my point is actually more about well, that's that's the French Enlightenment. And so this is the book that I've always had in my mind. Gertrude Himmelfarb was an historian. Uh, sorry, is an historian. Uh, she's she's still with us. She's ninety six. Uh, married Irving Crystal, so Bill Kristol's mother. Um, she was there at the birth of uh, the neoconservative movement. So an amazing uh, woman and historian. And what she's really tr- highlighting here is the British Enlightenment. She's saying, well, you know, the French were, uh, they did uh, with Rousseau in particular, and uh, those who put the, together the encyclopedia uh, really believe that you can remake the world with reason. Whereas uh, in Britain... Uh, so certainly the Scottish, David Hume, Adam Smith, but also uh, they, they in turn were inspired by an Englishman, the 3rd uh, Earl of Shaftesbury. This was about the moral sentiments. Uh, this was uh, the uh, common sense, if you like, an innate sense of right and wrong that could be appealed to and which you could build a foundation. And it was David Hume who famously said that um, uh, reason isn't always should be a slave to the passions. And so... I, I don't like it when those who sit two deaths away from me say that uh, the Enlightenment's a disaster and it's all... No, <laughs> nobody, <laughs> nobody in this room, I might add. No, no, no. Somebody who <laughs> may apologize. have appeared on this podcast <laughs> 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 um, because uh, the Enlightenment was about much more than what the French said and then it went to, of course, uh, the American continent where you know liberty was a defining value and, and Gertrude also talks about that. So we'll put up a, a link to that, but it was great to reread this wonderful work and I commend it to anyone who's trying to understand the role of reason, understand historically the role of the Enlightenment, and uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater is what I say. Aaron.
3: Well, there you go. Um, So so, something a bit lighter for you. Um, uh, I was in Sorrento over the Easter weekend uh, and caught uh, Aftermath at the cinemas um, starring Kira Knightley, Alexander Skagard and Jason Clarke. Um, uh, nothing of this will will spoil it because it's it's all really in the trailer. But a- essentially, it is uh, post World War II, um, just post. Um, so it's it's after um, the the end of the war. Uh, the setting is in uh, Hamburg, and uh, the the English uh, essentially a task with with cleaning up uh, afterwards. Uh, and we've got. Uh, an English army officer played by Jason Clark um, and uh, his wife. Uh, They requisition uh, a house uh, from an architect uh, and uh, he's a widower, uh, lost the wife in the war. The army couple have lost their son and uh, uh, very obligingly, uh, they they give their house over and they go and live in the attic. And there's... I just felt sitting through it, uh, and it's enjoyable. You know, you, you sit in the cinema for a couple of hours, and you eat your bag of popcorn, and and you have your extra large Coke Zero, and it's a, and it's a good experience, <laughs> right? You, you get your you get your money's worth. But I, I just felt that there were so many things that could have been fleshed out. It could have gone for another hour and actually fleshed out some themes. Instead, what we had was the, was the whole story centered around uh, the the wife played by by Keira Knightley. Um, you know, hooking up uh, with the, uh, the, the German uh, architect and um, it was just, you know, the, the whole sort of adultery thing kind of got skipped to pretty quickly. You know, we get to this early hostility neck minute adultery. And, I imagine that of, would have
0: been the most predictable thing you know, ever. Well, yeah, when, it was. When, when they, Skarsgård they, appears on screen, it's like, yeah, they're going to get it on. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, you, you,
3: you, you employ him for that purpose, right? <laughs> you know, Anyone pensive, who's seen True Blood
0: knows what I'm talking sort about. sort of
3: looks or whatever, right? But um, but but the, the the other aspect of it was the the, the young teenage daughter, um, you know, this sort of sweet and innocent girl, um, you know, sort of gets, gets caught up with... Uh, some of the the Nazi youth that are left over and they're painted as kind of the cool kids and and so there's there's that element um, and you know the, the end of that story was um, you know the, the Nazi boyfriend killing the driver which was actually a, an attempt on the life of the colonel and it didn't a- unpack any of that That stuff. It didn't tie up any of those ends. There are a lot of themes there that could have been really explored, but just weren't.
2: There's a fascinating book um, published in 2015 called Year Zero, which is a history of 1945, and it's precisely about that. About uh, uh, globally after World War II, about how. The demobilisation occurred in the first couple of months. About how everybody tried to live with each other, right? Um, uh, by, uh, the author is Ian Barima. It's it's an amazing book and, and worth picking up if you're
0: interested in you know right, the, so the actual things. We'll
3: go to we'll go to that. We'll <laughs> go yeah, to, that's so the so source. Don't watch this. What, what read, <laughs> that. read that?
0: <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah. How can how can you bagger up 1945 as a topic? But amazing. Uh, thank you, Aaron. Um, if you're not already a subscriber to Looking Forward, you can follow us on the podcast app or Podbeam or any of the other great platforms, please subscribe. Uh, this program has been brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs to support our research in this podcast. You can join or donate at ipa.org.au. A big thank you to our panellists, Dr. Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Aaron Lane. Thank you. And Gideon Rosner. Thank you. And, of course, our producer, James Bolt. Thank you, James. We'll be back with more looking forward next week.